0: Reach down and touch this groundhog. Way before it could turn around and bite me. Anything, you know? Did you try? I did. What happened? I touched it.
1: You are listening to Urban Wildlife. So, yeah, welcome back to another episode of the Urban Wildlife Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Billy Brown, with <laughs> Tony Crowsdale. Um, And we're lucky to have with us... Jessica Bomber. Or it feels weird to say with us because we're actually at her place, at the mansion at the Woodland Cemetery. And Jessica, what do you... I am the
2: executive director, one of two staff people of the Woodlands, um, which is an 18th century uh, estate turned 19th century rural cemetery, and today... Is still an active cemetery, but also serves the neighborhood as the largest open space um, in the general vicinity.
1: And to get some other little housekeeping stuff out of the way, if you like this podcast, and we think you like it if you keep listening to it, please find us on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever podcast listening platform you use, and like us. That's how other people find the podcast, and through your likes, you can help bring us to more people Who don't know they need us yet, but they do. Um, And and, uh, you can uh, get in touch with us um, at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. We're always happy to take suggestions and feedback and questions. Um, You can also find us on Facebook uh, and hit us up on Twitter at HerbWildlifeCast. And wherever you are, um, whether you're in a historic cemetery with neat wildlife, wherever that might be on the planet, or... Your backyard or your local park uh, and you see something cool we'd love it if you could record a little bit on your phone about what you're taking a look at and then pop us the file um, or you can, especially if you're in the States this will be easy, you can give us a call at 267-603-3219 again, 267-603-3219 and leave us a message um, and tell us about what you're looking at or what you're hearing or what you're, I don't know, what you're smelling and we'd love to put it on
0: the podcast So we we're hearing a chipping sparrow Singing in the background here, and which of the sounds cemetery. that we're hearing is the chipping? It's sparrow. the the one that sounds like chipping. Okay. I think mean, that's my name. I mean, it literally sounds like his name. It sounds like like in you know, like a trail. Okay. Are those resident? Or are they passing through? They're resident. Yeah. Okay. They're, they're, their Bird has probably done really well. They may sort of be a synanthropic organism. Chipping sparrows? Kind of because they uh, they do super well in um, manicured parks. They're, they're kind of like a savanna. Species where they, like, um... Not, like, Savannah, like, Africa, Savannah. Like, a Savannah just means a kind of open trees with open understory. Like, if you, you go to Savannahs in the Midwest, they're not, like, they're not like the trees are, like, hundreds of yards apart, like, in Africa. It's, like, yeah. they're, like, you know, they're they're a few yards apart from each other. You can walk it
1: without tripping over bushes. The whole right. Yeah.
0: And, so, they've... So, they love cemeteries. They love parking lots. They love, you know, um, your manicured park, you know. So... They've, they've done really, really well with people. so
1: Neat. We're going to do something experimental with this episode. I think we're going to talk. in are going to drop we... acid? No. <laughs> um, although, when I was in college, um, we lived next to a cemetery. And I didn't take part in this because I was a little scared of hallucinogenics in college. But um, I did have friends who dropped mushrooms and then wandered around in the cemetery. And one of them apparently had a very bad awakening in a, in a, in a um, what do you call them, a mausoleum.
2: Uh-huh.
1: Um, and wasn't quite sure if he was alive or dead, but uh, we won't do that today. So what we're going to do is try to is I'm going to post this as a two part a two part episode. We've got an interview with with the guy from Tower Hamlets, um, a cemetery park park in uh, in East London. London. Neat place, and I was like, Place
2: that I follow. I've been following their Facebook page to get ideas for the woodlands for a long time, so I was really excited. Oh, yeah, yeah. Is it Tower Tower Hamlets Cemetery Park?
0: But isn't Tower Hamlets and Fur Orchids opening for future islands on the the next tour?
2: Tower Hamlets is the name (laughs) of the general area. Yeah, it's like a
1: neighborhood. Yeah. Um, And so we'll talk to Mm. to him, uh, and then we'll. We'll, put a, we'll, we'll play a, an interview I recorded with a couple guys who work on amphibian reintroduction at a cemetery near Boston, Mount Auburn. And a lot of the stuff, the, the Mount Auburn stuff and this last one, run through our friend Dave Hewitt.
2: This is all David's stuff that I have with me that right. he's done on the woodlands for reference. So yeah, yeah, David David Hewitt definitely deserves some credit. We're rarely the, more uh, than a step or two
1: beyond David yes. Hewitt. <laughs> and so anyhow, so Dave Hewitt. Had connected me to a guy named Joe Martinez in Boston, who's been like a Boston urban reptile amphibian connection now, Um, and he's going to talk about the Mount Auburn Cemetery. But he also connected me to this college student in Brisbane, 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 uh, Brisbane, Australia, who is doing a census of
0: lizard species in Brisbane cemeteries. Um, They also call it Bris Vegas. Bris Vegas. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. They have you know in Australia they always kind of like. Remove syllables and consonants and vowels from words, and then they always have quirky nicknames for things. <laughs> so Brisbane, like we would say it here, is Brisbane, and they affectionately call it Bris Vegas. Do they have casinos and stuff? I think so.
1: I'm not exactly sure. Well, now I have a reason. Addition, addition, in addition to the bearded dragons and their cemeteries, um, and they're like urban pythons, which we didn't really talk
0: about on that interview. I'll be honest. I straight up made out with a beautiful Australian girl in a park in Brisbane because we are there looking for ta- tawny frog mouse and there was fruit bats flying over our heads. It was awesome. Yep. gray headed fruit bats. <laughs> it was awesome except that like uh, I had like a toothache or something and this guy <laughs> gave me like I thought he gave me like an Australian like like a, like a aspirin but I think the dude gave me like a Percocet so I started like <laughs> like feeling really messed up. It was a ruined my experience. Okay. Well, Neck, did you actually see any tawny frogmouths? No, but we saw lots of cane toads. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, invasive species. And then we saw the, the uh, uh, fruit bats. Okay. which species. All good.
1: right. Well, so we got a lot of cover. And so um, rather than try to jam it all into fifty minutes or so, I'm going to cut it in half. The part one I was thinking was to talk a little bit on the Tower Hamlet side um, and parallels to how... Y- you manage the woodlands and what you try to get out of the woodlands for people who around here and people who visit.
3: Um, Is that the Chipping Sparrow again, by the way? Yeah. That's it? Cool. All right. Yeah. So my name's Kenneth Greenway and I'm the Cemetery Park manager with the friends of Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park. Okay. So Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park is one of London's magnificent seven cemeteries that were opened by an act of parliament in response to a London wide burial crisis of the early 19th century. So when we opened in 1841 as the last of the Magnificent Seven, we were very much in the rural edge of London. You had clear views across the edge of the city. There was market gardens, farming. You could see all the way to the south and the masts of the ships in the Thames. So we were all installed where there was space. And the reason we were created was because London had a growing population. You had had the Industrial Revolution. People were becoming more urbanised, so leaving the city... I'm um, leaving the countryside to come and look for opportunities within the city because we had the docks here in East London. So we had a increase in population as a result, an increase in rate of mortality. And that was why we all opened up along with the other six. But we were all privately run. So we were we existed for profit. And so we had a board of directors. We had trustees. We had people that invested money and uh, to earn dividends from that money. But East London has always been historically poor. So very few people could actually afford those private graves which is where the wealth was 80% of our burial demand here came from the poor of East London who went into shared often unmarked public graves and these could be you know 12 people stacked one on top of the other Uh. So this site very quickly became full and the company hit financial difficulties and declared bankruptcy in 1963 and we finally closed as a cemetery by Act of Parliament being redeclared a public park in 1966. There are more people buried here than there are are alive in this borough of London. So we're in the London (laughs) Borough of Tower Hamlets, a stone's throw from Mile End Tube Station, just off the famous Mile End Bow Road that takes you into London. And there's 380,000 people buried here. Tower Hamlets is home to 280,000 people who uh, make this borough their day-to-day home. So once we became a park, Um, The Greater London Council did that work. They don't exist anymore. And they began a process of clearance because you have to bear in mind that in Britain, post-war 1960s Britain, the attitude of the day was knock it down and start again. So in their mind, there was a conflict between the monuments and its new status as a park. So they felt the monuments had to be removed to make room for its new park status. And they began that work. We're removing them to landfill sites in Essex or actually burying them on site and that actually not only was it very expensive but it was hugely controversial so there was a massive public outcry big protest on site outside city hall which is now marriott's hotel by the london eye on the south <laughs> bank of Thames. and uh, so rather than lose all 27 acres of our cemetery of the historic closed cemetery we only actually lost a 0.7 acres of the historic cemetery so most okay. of our monuments still stand and then The Greater London Council were abolished by one of our Prime Ministers, Margaret Thatcher, in 1985. And that's when this site came over to our local authority, the London Borough of Tower Hamlets. And uh, they were very much engaged in a process of regeneration throughout the borough with the Docklands development and a new finance district being built within the borough. So there wasn't really the energy or the capacity to know really how best to take this site forward. So they began working with local people to create a working group which is how we began to be formed, really, as a local Friends Of group. So we came together in 1986, defending the site against a high-rise block of flats in 1987, becoming a constituted group in 1990, and we've been here ever since. And we're the sole carers of the Cemetery Park. We manage it on behalf of our local council, and we do that through a service-level agreement, and we've been doing that formally since 2004, but even since, you know, 87 We've always complimented the council's work here before they handed that role on to us. So the council are a key stakeholder and they sit company, attend meetings and contribute quarterly to what we're doing. But we very much have a kind of free reign here to kind of do what we see best. So we manage it as a place for wildlife, people and education. We're the only woodland in this borough, uh, uh, Tower Hamlets, we're the most urban woodland in London. a designated local nature reserve and a site of metropolitan importance for nature conservation so anyone who's used to kind of big city living you know their day-to-day may well be pavements traffic tower blocks the sounds and smells are quite different in a city what we offer is a little piece of the countryside here in the city we can't escape that we're in zone two but you come in here and the smell it smells different the dominant sounds become the birds in the trees the wind in the leaves your feet on the ground um, and rather than listening to people discussing their personal lives on mobile phones it's birds bugs and bees sharing their personal lives with you instead so it you know for it contributes not only to the well-being of wildlife that makes london its home it contributes a great deal to people's mental and physical well-being so you know we work with 3,000 volunteers a year to manage the cemetery park as we see it as as a as a place for wildlife and people really because it's a it's a very exciting place, it's very dynamic, and a very dynamic community, and that's reflected through our burials and, and the wildlife that makes its, its home. So, as I said, 3,000 volunteers a year help us, we welcome 7,500 school children a year, what you would probably call elementary year groups. Sure. Uh, so they're doing um, wildlife studies here, nature studies, and that's delivered by another charity that's based here called Setpoint London East. And then um, we have a training and leisure learning manager here called uh, Tess, and she manages our events programme. So, in a we, I'm not sure what the situation is in the states, but here here in Britain we're in a big, you know, atmosphere of cuts, massive cuts to local authorities. Yeah. And so we've got to still keep part the park central to the community it's in, but it's got to pay its way. And so if people like it, pay for some of our events. We deliver 130 free events a year, but on top of that we're delivering. Kind of 50 to 70 events a year, which generate income. Sure. So these are these are kind of they could be training events around how you might manage about around for biodiversity, how you might recognise certain plants and animals. We do wild food events. We've done scything courses, and we've we've taken the. Plant. I'm sorry,
4: could you say that last part again?
3: Scything courses. So um, you think of death with this traditional. <laughs> kind of big bladed.
4: I thought uh, that's what you said. Okay. <laughs> yeah.
3: So we do scything courses. It's a great. It's a very traditional way of managing meadows, and it's how they would have cut for hay in the past before tractors. And so it's a lovely thing to do here. We get a kind of mid-season cut, which benefits our wildflowers here, gives them another chance to flower. But it's it's a lovely thing to keep those kind of rural skills that aren't so widely used anymore to keep them alive. And we can offer that opportunity. We get a we get some management done people learn something fun and can tick it off their bucket list kind of a red letter day type experience (laughs) and um you know it's all about celebrating nature in the city and and rural crafts and rural skills and and saying look just because you're in london doesn't mean that it's this kind of sterile place if you make a home for wildlife it will come and it will it will it will survive Wildlife's pretty robust It's had a long time to get robust before humans kind of started really changing the plant planet and so you know we're very proud of what we've got here you know we've got 28 different species of butterfly recorded here now Britain's only home to just over 50 species so that's pretty special for a zone 2 inner city site that we have half we've recorded half of all Britain's butterfly species here you know there's plants not uncommon in the urban context so you know it's a very for people who want who want that experience and want to connect to the outdoors and in, you know in london's a very kind of dynamic community lots of people come here to work and they may have lived in the countryside they've yeah. come to them for the convenience and the joy of 24-hour living and you know, this can help satisfy that thing that a lot of people miss when they leave rural areas and go and live in the city you can come here and have a completely different experience
4: you know at what point did someone make the decision or did the the organization make the decision that um, you know we're not just going to keep this a like a, a a typical city park with sort of mowed grass and benches and and you know if and, and bulbs and stuff like that planted for flowers but manage it as a um, as manage it also uh, for for more rural kinds of, of landscape types or more wild types of landscape types. Um, what, what, when did that happen? And, and well, guess, what was the thinking behind that decision?
3: Yeah. So, so kind of two things kind of led that thinking, really. So during our time as an active cemetery, areas that had became filled with burials, the company stopped tending, and it was down to grave owners to cut back the vegetation. Uh, so now hundreds odd years of of activity as a cemetery that a woodland began to grow up. And we do have accounts before the turn of the 20th century of parts of the cemetery park being completely inaccessible through an aggressive growth of trees and ivy. So before the friends kind of got their teeth in it, we had this woodland landscape. And so there's no point changing that. Let's work with it and enhance it. But also at the same time, our current vice chair of trustees, a chap called Terry Lyle, He'd relocated to Tower Hamlets. He'd um, kind of spent time doing forestry in Australia and grew up a very keen kind of naturalist, very much butterflies and moths and flowers. And he discovered this place. And initially, you know, he's a young man and new family and all that kind of stuff. He couldn't invest, but he was able to, he found he was the one-eyed king in the land of the blind. (laughs) He was the only one who knew anything about how you might positively manage this which doesn't involve cutting it all down so you know terry kind of terry was very much i guess the catalyst for that thinking and um, with the friends the, the friends were early they were grateful for all support and help you know there's a volunteer saying i'll help you manage it i'll give you guidance advice and guidance on how to take this site forward best and how we can care for it and make make something really special and make us stand out amongst the other parts in tower hamlet
4: yeah
3: and i think terry was very much the leading light there and it was it easier to sell managing for wildlife than it is kind of trying to care for the monument and think of it more as a cemetery. There's not enough money in the world to care for all of our monuments. So, you know, the best way we can defend the history is to give value to the green. So let's make the best. Let's structure the woodland. Let's get wildflowers and spring bulbs. Let's get people seeing flowers. Because if people see flowers, that goes a long way to public opinion. It really does. Yeah. It's amazing how much people... Feel nice about the place if it's free of litter, and they see a flower or two. They're more, you know, it's kind of always thinking of that eye candy stuff. You think <laughs> of caretakers of housing estates. You know, when they arrive, they pick up the litter, because that's the eye candy. That's the thing they'll get the complaints about. So right. I think that's really there was there was a, there was a love of wildlife and a love of wildlife in the city. There was an appetite for it, and so it was kind of the climate was very right, and we had a, a very pivotal person who'd moved to the borough and drove that. I think the Cemetery Park would be very different without Perry. I certainly wouldn't be here, I don't think.
4: (laughs) (laughs) I don't think we will have a chance to talk about every plant and animal that you are proud of and find interesting there. Um, But uh, if you could, let's take one of each. So let's start with the plants. Is there a a plant species, um, let's not even just say your favorite, but one that you're particularly proud of um, being featured or or thriving in the, the, the cemetery?
3: I guess the one that we get the most compliments about are cowslips. They're very kind of small, delicate, yellow, wildflower. And people are very kind of romantic about the flower. They're very rose-tinted spectacles about it because we have a lot of older people who walk here. And they remember being evacuated away from London and to the countryside of, of the UK and seeing those flowers. So... We get the most positive feedback on cowslips, and I particularly like seeing them. They're such happy little flowers. (laughs) They're very small and delicate. They're bright yellow, and they kind of poke up above the grass. And and there they are, just being all lovely and and just beautiful. And so they always make me smile when I see them.
4: And so these are are a meadow
3: wild flower? uh, An open meadow flower, yes. You see them in open grasslands. Okay,
4: neat. And um, on the the animal side of things, um, is there something there that uh you know yeah often we focus on what we call the charismatic megafauna um and and maybe something is in that category but feel free to to select something from the the microfauna or the or things that you find charismatic but might not be charismatic to other people
3: no well i love bats um so very proud that we have bats that feed here we don't have roosts that we've been able to learn about here but we have bats that forage here in the cemetery park and, and bats are an endangered animal in Britain so for someone who loves bats and I've loved bats since I was a very young boy uh, to see them you know I still have that kind of childhood wonder when I see them every year there's that relief that they're still got their maternity roost somewhere and they're they're still returning it's that oh, they're still about we haven't lost the our bats they're still coming to feed something still exists wherever they're living so i love bats um people are very fond of the of the red fox and the gray squirrel here which is a north american no all right sorry about that (laughs) yeah that's fine it's not your fault (laughs) um but i guess the one thing that the other kind of thing next to that would be our butterflies and one butterfly that gets a lot of um, comments is the brimstone it's um the male is quite a lovely kind of lemon yellow and he's a large one. Of, one of our larger butterflies, and so people love seeing that in early spring. They can be parading around on a nice sunny day, mild day in December, and they're just a great, powerful butterfly. So our brimstone butterfly would be the other one.
4: So brimstones, what is their? Um, do you know what their their hosts uh, species, host plant species are?
3: So the, the caterpillars feed on a plant called buckthorn, and um, purging and order buckthorn. So. We've been planting, the friends have been planting them a long time, and I've, we've, we've planted them since my time here. And so we have a very strong, healthy population here of brimstones. So we do a weekly transect between April and September, uh-huh. monitoring butterflies along a 12-section route. And we get often to, over 200 records of brimstones every year on that route. So they're a very successful butterfly here, but you go looking for those caterpillars and then pupae. I've seen one in my life and that was very exciting. You can look at every brimstone, every buckthorn plant, and never never see one, but I've seen one and that that's fine. I've I've ticked that off my list.
4: <laughs> so what does a buckthorn plant look like?
3: Um it's a small woody shrub. Um that doesn't get more than kind of a metre half two two metres. It has small green oval leaves and they have small black berries. Um kind of thinking like hawthorn berry size. Uh, maybe like a blackcurrant-sized berry, but they're kind of a deep black, and they're enjoyed by birds. You can watch the wood pigeons here, which are kind of weigh the same as a bag of sugar, doing these wonderful acrobats on the end of the buckfall, buckthorn plants, trying to de- devour all the berries on there, and they're doing these wonderful <laughs> things for their wings to keep a balance on the end of the flimsy branches. So it's, it's not a very big plant, but we they like sunny places and wet places, and so we stick them wherever we can. No, thank you very much for allowing me to kind of take part in your podcast, but I would love everyone to visit our website um, www.fothcp.org and please do like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram all that kind of stuff and keep in touch with us
1: So as we were listening about the Tower Hamlets, um, I mean that was a, a cemetery that was wholesale converted away from a cemetery mission To a park mission, um, where they've sort of also embraced sort of the 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 say assets as nature within a city, Um, and so I see some parallels here with the woodlands. And so I just you know why it might seem obvious to us, um, but there are certainly cemeteries in cities that don't do bat walks and don't do um, don't do uh, uh, firefly walks and other things that are just obviously and and very intentionally trying to 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 connect urban urbanites to sort of natural Mm -hmm. assets not just a, a manicured green space um so why is woodlands chosen that direction well a
2: couple of different reasons um yes you know we primarily prior to five years ago did primarily did history programming when we did public programming and um, we are really significant. How long have you been in your position now? Five years. There you go. Okay. So, um, you know, we have a really significant history, um, thus the history programming. But I also live in this neighborhood and kind of realize the value of this place as open space. And so do we. All <laughs> yes,
0: I, we I all live in this I neighborhood. I can vouch that you do because I see your amazing truck parked yeah, all the time in the neighborhood.
2: What kind of truck do you have again? It's a uh, short bed, 1970 C10. Chevy. <laughs> Chevy <laughs> girl all the way.
1: And Didn't it's used a working... to care,
2: but until I got this truck, and now I... Every time I see an old car that I like, it almost is always a Chevy.
1: And that's a working vehicle. It's
2: a working vehicle. Uh, drove it across the country, visited 12 national parks, went all the way to Glacier and back last summer.
1: Wow. But, I mean, like, does it work here? Like, towing stuff I mean,
2: yeah. Okay. I you know, I throw dirt and plants in the back of it. There you, and, go. you know. All right. It it is a it is a working vehicle. It is not a show car. <laughs> um, but it's
1: it's in pretty good shape. But you were um, saying you live in the neighborhood, you value this as green live space. Live in the
2: neighborhood, value this as green space and because I live in the neighborhood knew that a lot of other people That that's what they valued the most about it. Um, so, kind of saw an opportunity to bring more people here through the nature side of things. You're not going to get everybody to care about history, but we have over 700 trees planted on the property. There's tons of tree people in the neighborhood that could come in and explore and learn more about trees. Like the um, ants
0: from Lord of the Rings. Like, yeah, tree people.
2: Tree people, exactly. <laughs> and, um... We also, you know, have lots of schools around. Um, We had... I started to notice that there were a lot of birders that would come here in the morning. So through observation, I just realized that people were using the site for a lot of different things.
0: I come here to bird.
1: I come here to look for snakes. So Mm -hmm. there you go.
2: Yeah. So it just seemed like there was an opportunity to broaden our audience. Then in addition to that this cemetery was founded in 1840 on the 18th century estate of William Hamilton, which in its own right has a really interesting kind of natural history, introduction of numerous tree and plant species to North America on this site. Um, In 1840, when the cemetery was founded, it was founded by a man named Eli K. Price, who 25 years later, in 1865, was a major player in the founding of Philadelphia's park system, Fairmount Park, and in 1840 there were no public parks so people came here and used it as a park so it seems logical that we would continue to do so since that's what the founders intended Um, and then thirdly there's not a lot of open space in this neighborhood we have you know some great parks around uh, kind of close within walking distance but they're small parks clark park is really small kind of neighborhood parks and there isn't the kind of park that you can go in and kind of escape the city from, and so we serve the neighborhood in that way.
1: Okay. What have you seen here that has surprised you?
4: Hmm.
1: Like what critter or what plant did you find and say, "Oh my god, hmm. is that"?
0: Or someone might find surprising. Maybe you were more informed. Going yeah. um, into it.
2: Well, I mean, I would say that I'm regularly surprised by this place. Um, I think. I mean, is it too early to talk about Groundhogs? Because I think that that's been a surprising
1: thing. Uh, We can talk about the saga of the Groundhogs. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: So we, I think something that I didn't expect to have to deal with maybe more than being surprised by is some of the issues related to nature that I didn't ever expect in my lifetime I would have to deal with. I think it's more that.
1: Yeah. Um, so the groundhogs, let's, for those who don't live in this, I guess, in North, we actually have some listeners outside of North America. Oh, yeah, that's amount. great. Fair I've enough. had
2: some uh, folks, some friends from England visit here, and we've walked through the cemetery and they saw groundhogs and they were fascinated right. by the groundhogs. So
1: so what's a groundhog? Describe a groundhog to someone who's never seen one.
2: Um, A groundhog, they're kind of cute. They're, um... How many pounds are they? They range in size, uh, but Compared probably... Compared to like, a house cat. They're, a, they're about the size of a house cat, but a lot fatter. Yeah. A lot fatter, uh, real furry, kind of blubbery. They have they have Especially long, in the fall. You really see fat the rippling as they walk. They have long claws because they use those claws to dig their holes. Um, they Everybody's hibernate.
0: This, they're a squirrel. People, the people are, are they a squirrel? squirrel? Yeah. I didn't they know are, that they, they are were a were squirrel. A they are a type squirrel. of ground squirrel. So. They're a, a, they're a, they are a marmot. Ah. Okay. Marmot, marmot
2: They're also known as, they have a lot of nicknames, whistle pigs.
0: Yeah. Woodchuck.
2: Woodchuck. Groundhog. They get, people that don't know what they are often think they're a beaver, but they are not a beaver.
1: Hey, podcast listeners. At this point in our discussion, we had to move inside the Woodlands Mansion because of noise from a nearby landscaping crew.
2: We got more Instagram and Facebook likes than any other post we've ever had on our Groundhog Day post this year. Because we have so many pictures of groundhogs in the cemetery. We've got this one picture of two people riding by on bikes, and there's like it looks like it's fake. There's like a groundhog watching them. And they're adorable the when
1: they put themselves up like that. We like found old this old bluegrass song I've talking about the frogs.
2: Put it to music.
1: Aww. The babies
2: are adorable. We've yeah. we've trapped and relocated a few
1: youth. So they're 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 adorable. Apparently they taste good, um, and they but they're notorious. It's like if you're a gardener, they're notorious for like eating all of your vegetables. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Pollan in a Second Nature, which is one of my favorite of his books before he... I'm not a... Well, another topic, but um, he had a section where he was trying to kill the groundhog that kept eating his lettuce and everything Mm -hmm. else. And he actually ended up pouring gasoline down the burrow and lighting it.
2: Yeah, that's one of the methods. We have never used that method. But they they do wreak havoc on things, and they... Yeah. Because of their tunneling, burrowing nature, and because we are a cemetery that has monuments of varying sizes. They tend to undermine headstones, cause a lot of damage, and they create the perfect size hole for a foot to get, to go down to break an ankle. Yeah. as a place that's a public space. That poses a problem. And they eat the plants that we don't want eaten. So we have three problems. Um... They also have no real predators on the property.
0: Yeah, no like golden eagles or so, yeah. coyotes. Yeah, so I mean, we're 54
2: acres. If we keep saying I really want the, the coy wolf to come to the woodlands so that our... They're not that far. So that our groundhogs have a predator. It give it, honestly, give it five years. Mm-hmm. I bet they'll
1: be here. I mean, like they're in, around the airport, which is just sort of a straight shot up along the river here. My... And that's all Green Corridor for Coyote's perspective, you yeah.
0: I don't know how well to take this, but a, uh, a friend of my father's who lives just across the South Street Bridge says he's seen him, um, like, he saw one like running on the, like, like, on the set, like right, or, like, right on, like, 76 on-ramp right there by the Schuylkill. There's, like, parks there and no man's land there. So... I don't know.
2: I had one person, actually two people on the same night. We had a kind of fancy-style party in the mansion, and it was around dusk. And one of the women who was attending the party came up to me and said, Jessica, as I was waiting from the car, I, I saw what looked like a dog with glowing eyes.
1: Which is great for a cemetery.
2: And I was like, what are you talking about? And she. The demon wolf of the woodlands. And then another person told me they saw a similar thing, and I always wondered if it was a koi wolf or a coyote or some I mean, kind of an animal like
1: that. Their poop is pretty easy to identify. Okay. You're looking at it, it just looks like dog poop, but with a lot of fur in it. Okay. Um, dog
2: poop with lots of fur, because they eat furry things. Exactly.
1: So they're horking down squirrels, and mm-hmm. groundhogs, and rabbits. Um, with the fur included. Mm -hmm. Um, We
2: had some foxes in the past, but I think groundhog babies, yes, but groundhog adults are pretty big, and they can get pretty snarly.
1: They're hefty animals, Um, yeah.
2: We don't allow dogs to run off-leash here, although some people do not follow the rules, and every once in a while we find a groundhog that's clearly been... Taken to another place by a dog. <laughs> um, Let's talk about dogs a little bit when you, yeah. at some point in this conversation. Yeah. A couple years ago, you know, I would see the occasional groundhog. Last summer became... By the end of last summer, like, you would walk, walk through the cemetery on a hot day, and there would just be groundhogs, like, sunbathing on top of headstones. And I realized we had kind of gotten to this problem point of, of things... So this spring, before they started having babies, we realized we needed to do some kind of control, which is hard when you're in the city and when you have a lot of people using the site, a lot of people that love to come here to see the nature and the groundhogs and don't necessarily um, understand fully the problems they're causing. So you're dealing with a lot of different opinions on the matter. We were Basically, our initial plan was we're just going to get some live traps and trap them ourselves and figure out where to bring them and then after some um we have a few people that come here that are friends with the groundhogs um you know we have we have a woman that comes here every single day yes she comes here every single day she comes here with peanuts she comes here with apples and she feeds the squirrels and groundhogs and there's a particular section of the cemetery that she is very close with the animals and we had numerous confrontations with her, even though we were live trapping. That you know, we had very we had numerous confrontations with her. So, um, and and a few other people that lived in, in the neighborhood. So, you we, couldn't take
1: advantage of that and just wait till she's not there, put out apples, and then well, so then what? The
2: what happened <laughs> is um, we decided just to kind of protect the site. We needed to work with a state licensed person to do the trapping. So. We've been putting about 12 traps out a day, unless it's a really hot day, because we don't want to trap a groundhog and have them sitting in the sun all day. We're trying to be very kind to these animals. Um, 12 traps a day, uh, putting apples in the traps. We've caught probably close to 40 groundhogs and they've been relocated uh, to another county um, by this uh, company that we're working with. When we first started putting the traps out, we had a lot of trap sabotage by the people who loved the groundhogs. People springing the traps, people springing the traps, dumping the food out of the traps, um, modifying the traps so they could not be set. Um, So we we really had to. uh, So it was a little. It was frustrating to say the least because it's so obvious. Anybody kind of who who thinks about it and sees the holes and realizes there's headstones falling over and, you know, that they're causing all these other problems. Honestly, we we had a small piece of a 19th century boot near one of the holes. So you've got groundhogs going into the ground, but there's... They're excavating... There's a lot of stuff underground in a cemetery, and especially a cemetery of this era. you You want it to stay underground. You have things you want to stay underground, and there's a lot of vaulted structures underground um, that, you know, if a groundhog gets in there, they... They have, a, they have like a whole lair under there. So it becomes like a much bigger problem. And because they don't have any predators, were uh, I, I wish that we just had some natural predators on site to keep things in check, but that's not the case at the moment.
0: You would think that a, someone seeing a live trap would respect that, you know, if you're an advocate of these animals, or like, these animals are getting a trip to a nicer place to live. And then an urban cemetery. Yeah, you know. I think you're
1: being really nice.
2: You know, it's interesting. I, based on kind of my research in deciding to hire somebody to deal with this, like legally, we have to work with a state licensed person. Yeah. Yes. So you know, when you have people that are clear, they're being somewhat threatening about the fact you're trapping them at all, just to kind of protect the place said you know what so we called bartrams because they had a groundhog problem and we you know they worked with this company a few years ago and we're happy with them and they've been great um but we still have a lot of groundhogs
1: this concludes the first part of the episode download the
4: next one uh part two to listen to the rest of our interview with jessica and the rest of our interviews